This is Seattle Sports at Night with Curtis Rogers, Jake Heaps, and Stacey Rost on 710 ESPN Seattle. It is Seattle Sports at Night. Curtis Rogers and the quarterback, the guru himself, the birthday boy. What other titles am I missing here, Jake? I don't know, but I think you covered it all. I think I did. Jake Heaps here with me late at night here on this Thursday. Jake, you're you're another year older. You, you made one more rotation around the sun. How's it, That's how's right. it feel? To, it uh, feels good. It feels great. feel blessed and grateful, uh, but... You can tell that you're definitely getting up there in age, you know, oh, yeah. and I uh, I don't appreciate that. Yeah, because we're both 28 now. That's right, and uh, the one thing that you do learn is, is that as you're getting older, you don't really care too much about a party thrown uh-huh. for uh-huh. you. You just want to just kind of hang out and you just want to keep it really low-key and... You know, there's something to be said about that, but uh, I do miss the uh, the grand old birthday parties with the amazing cake. And, and you, you bring your friends over. That's right. You go play video games, or yeah, you go you know, uh, rent out the the laser tag arena. In exactly. Oh. Where where's some of that? Right. I mean, you know, deepen into the uh, dip into the childhood roots here. When was the last time here? you've been laser tagging? By the way, which I think is Ooh. something that not enough people do, myself no. included. I, I think the last time I went laser tagging was two years ago, wow. and it was one of those things where, like, I kind of, you know, all right, I'm going to do this. It's kind of fun, and fun. I'm going to then... pick up the gun, and then at the minute it was go time, you are. It like was Seal Jason Team Born. That's yeah. right, Seal Team Six, kicking <laughs> down doors, taking names. <laughs> Taking candy from six-year-olds, exactly. get it out of my way. Yeah, I mean, it is. there is something to be said about laser tag, and I think that there's actually, have you ever heard of tacni- tactical laser tag? Uh, no. Okay, so I think that there's a place, and I'm going to look this up, Curtis, because I think this would be great bonding for Seattle Sports at I Night here. I think so, too. But there's a place around here, I believe it's in Renton, where there's tactical laser tag. Wow. It is the real deal. And uh, and so use, like, we should go down real there. Real lasers that yes. hurt? <laughs> oh, no, not like that. But they've got like the full on vests, and they've got like a M M fourteen type of M four type looking gun that that feels real and all that. But we should go do that and report on how that was. But I think that would be, I think that would be very educational to learn about each other. Oh yeah, in those situations, you definitely learn like <laughs> what everybody's made of, or For like sure. what is lying beneath the surface. Like, whoa, I didn't know you had that kind of aggression inside of you. That's right. I uh, I'm more of a laser quest guy in federal way. Okay, kinda, yeah, where the, they have you. Uh, recite like the the laser quest oath or whatever before going in. Gotcha. Yeah, <laughs> where it's like I will not cover my lasers. I will not. <laughs> I will not tackle people. And it's like, and clearly no one like follows those those orders. Yeah, They're, but whoever covers their laser tag, you are the scum of the earth. Oh, absolutely. How dare you? Yeah, I mean, just there's the door. I think everybody should just prop them up in the middle of the arena and just start shooting at them like crazy. That should be the punishment. You get the Absolute. lowest score possible. Absolutely. That's exactly how you figured that out. Well, I'm glad to see we, we've stayed on topic here, <laughs> but it's super late at night, so anything goes here on 710 ESPN Seattle. Uh, we got a lot to get to in this hour. We got to look at the Seahawks roster. And we're, what, five, six weeks away from training camp now. And there are a couple groups that are pretty deep on the Seahawks right now. And are they deep enough for the Seahawks to carry everybody involved, or are there going to be some roster casualties? We'll get into that in Big If True coming up in about 30 minutes from now. 
But, Jake, uh, let's get into what is on Thursday's timeline. And Seahawks training camp tickets, they're on sale. Well, they were on sale today, selling out within minutes, as they tend to do. But, yeah, of uh, course. 15 open practices, including one at Popkini Stadium in Bothell. So, I mean, it, it just goes to show that I think the Seahawks and the, the fever that surrounds them continues to just absolutely ring true no matter – I guess, what kind of success they've had. It's been a couple of years since they've won a playoff game, but even then, they're still going to be selling out no matter what it is. Oh, for sure. I mean, the 12s come out in in just troves of people uh, for training camp, and I think my favorite experience of that in terms of the NFL as a player, the difference there was between fan bases of the New York Jets yeah, and the Seattle Seahawks. Talk about that a little bit because you <laughs> played for the Jets your rookie season in the NFL. Yeah. And then you come home and play for the Seahawks. What was it like practicing in front of Jets fans compared to Seahawks fans? Okay, so the majority of Jets fans, from what I've come to know, is that they actually really don't know anybody on the team. Okay? Mm-hmm. They only know a couple people. And then there's a there's a major there's a good section of those fans that go out there just to heckle those players. Mm. Like Geno Smith couldn't get away from any of those fans. Uh, Brandon Marshall, uh, Decker. I mean, you're talking about people that are the star players of your team that you think would be getting all the love. But man, they were getting a ton of hate. And anything, if a ball was dropped, if you know an interception was made. I mean, it was brutal, absolutely brutal. And you go over to Seattle and completely different. You actually have the players that love that the fans are out there. They are totally embracing the fact that it brings so much more positive energy and just adds a whole different dimension to practice. And again, the Jets in a negative way and the Seahawks in a very positive way. And just the difference between the two was amazing. And, you know, I definitely enjoyed my experience in Seattle a heck of a lot more than with the New York Jets. But it just was amazing to me how they just loved going after their top guys. And, and here in Seattle, it is the complete opposite. They The, the top guys can do no wrong. Man, it's, it's so wild to think that there's a there, – and it's not unique to Jets fans. It's a lot of fan bases across the NFL where their fan base – has this view of their team where they they're almost rooting against them in a way and to see or to hear stories like that it's just so mind-boggling and then you go out to Seahawks headquarters if you're lucky enough to be uh, one of the chosen few to get training camp tickets right. uh, and just to see how like Seahawks can do no wrong in yeah the it, it, it reminds me of kind of like a gladiator mentality it's true entertainment where you're looking at these players and they're just fun they're fun to, to point at, to make fun of, to heckle, you know, that type of thing because they're not real people. Whereas in Seattle, they I believe that there's a deeper connection to the players and to the fan base there. So it's it's just an, a difference of mentality. Again, that's only a small sample size of Jets fans. I'm not saying that that's everybody. But, man, that was a, a different experience uh, from one team to the other, without a doubt. Uh, also in the news, the NBA draft took place tonight in – no more doubt left to be said. The New Orleans Pelicans, they go number one overall and take Zion Williamson. They're able to restart or revamp, I guess, after the Anthony Davis trade. They get a couple of young prospects back from the Lakers. They also now add Zion Williamson to their roster. 
they're not they're probably not going to be down for very long after the Anthony Davis trade. In fact, they're probably going to be in the hunt for the Western Conference uh, playoff spots because of just yeah. how back the Warriors might fall here with Kevin Durant's injury and Klay Thompson's injury and I I'm enjoying that there is a lot more wide openness in the NBA heading into this next season. Yeah, you can't really you couldn't have really said that over the last little while of the NBA and the Pelicans, I think when you look at this squad, there's a bunch of young talent on this team, and I believe that there's talent that can actually produce. So the the health of where this team is at moving forward, I, I would be excited if I'm a Pelicans fan. I know losing Anthony Davis was a big deal, but you replaced that with Zion, uh, who not only is going to be able to hand, come in and handle himself like a pro, but I believe is going to have a massive impact, and you've got good pieces around him. So it'll be a matter of can these personalities mesh and gel moving forward um, and and that'll be actually intriguing to to watch. And I haven't been able to say that about any Pelican team in the past. Yeah, they're one of those teams that's like, oh yeah, they're still around. I believe them and the Clippers are the only two teams in the NBA to have never played. Well, them, the Clippers, and the the Hornets. They're the only three teams who have never played for a conference final. So I mean, they're just one of those afterthought teams. And it's not to say that they haven't been good ever. Yeah, they've had Chris Paul, they've had Anthony Davis, now they've got Zion. So maybe they come out of that Western Conference that's a lot more wide open. Uh, Also, Women's World Cup, Team USA wrapping up group play action today. They knock off Sweden 2-0. They will now face Spain on June 24th in the knockout round of 16. USA, they've looked like a juggernaut so far, but they also haven't been playing with with the, the elephant in the room of, you know, it's an elimination game. Right. So they've been able to – I mean, they certainly haven't taken their foot off the gas pedal, but they've also been playing with a little bit of an immunity, knowing that if they win or lose, it's not entirely the end of the world. But now, if they lose coming up in the next, what, three, four rounds, then it is the end of the world. It's the end of the World Cup for them. Uh, they face Spain June 24th. Uh, but just watching them over in France over the last couple of weeks in group play action, uh, I don't think there's another team on planet Earth that can touch them right now. Yeah, they're playing at an extremely high level, and you have to love uh, the just the togetherness of how they're playing, the enthusiasm that they have, and, and that enthusiasm ultimately got questioned by the Canadians. Yeah, of uh, all people. Right, on, uh, you love that. Uh, but I, I really love this group, and they're extremely, extremely entertaining to watch. I was watching them a little bit before uh, earlier today, and, and just, again, this is a team that you – absolutely want to root for and and uh, I think that they've got all the makings to to bring this thing home. Uh, some weird news today in Major League Baseball. Did you see this? Jeff Passan of ESPN.com reporting that the Tampa Bay Rays are yeah. researching <laughs> on how they can go about splitting their time between Tampa and Montreal. Why? Why on earth would you want to do this? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I mean, how does this work out, Curtis, when they play? Okay, one, if if they were to go to the playoffs, who ends up getting well, yeah. the playoff games? It, yeah. Two, if you're playing for that team and you end up going to Montreal, do you now get paid in Canadian or do you get paid in U.S. dollars? And now do you have to find a place to live in Tampa and also Montreal? Like that's, yes. That's really annoying if you're a player on those rosters. Horrible. And horrible. then if you're a fan in either one of those cities, let's say you're a, a diehard Tampa Bay Rays fan in Tampa, 
you, you bleed, I believe it's the 813, as they always text in. Yes. Seattle Sports Night. Shout yes, out to is. the 813. Uh, but if you are in that town and your team is gone for half the season, like, I wouldn't even want them at that point. It's like, either be here or don't. Right. It's Why the, would you even go to any of the games? Crap or get off the pot, basically. Yes. And then if you're a Montreal fan, you say, no. We haven't had a team in almost, you know, 15 years now. I only want to root for a team that is entirely Montreal's. I don't want to share a team with another city. Like, imagine if the NBA and, like, the Grizzlies or some team like that chose to split time between Memphis and Seattle, and they spent half their season playing in Seattle. As a Sonics fan, and you were a Sonics fan growing up too, like, that would make me even more mad because it's like you're just dangling this carrot in front of a fan base and saying, oh, this could be yours if you met our full demands, not your city's demands. Right. It, it, it's just, it's not, it, it cannot work. It's worse than just keeping the Rays in Tampa Bay under the current circumstances in in, in the Tropicana field. It, it's, it's Major League Baseball once again making a, a problem that didn't need to exist. Yeah, without a doubt, and it doesn't it, like again. I think this does more harm than good. And from a PR standpoint, even if this doesn't go through, what were you thinking? What were you thinking bringing this up and trying to even look into it? Because now, when you go back to Tampa and with your current fan base, I know it hasn't been great any regardless, but you're just making that worse and perpetuating the situation. So. Uh, to me, this is just all around bad management. I know the baseball side of things; they seem to be, you know, going in a good direction for them moving forward. But uh, other than that, they have not been able to figure out how to connect to their uh, particular location and their their fan base. Coming up next here on Seattle Sports at Night, I was reading on ESPN.com today an article that got me thinking: Has replay in pro sports given sports fans unreasonable expectations? for officiating in youth sports? We answered that question next. Curtis Rogers, Jay Keep, Seattle Sports Tonight on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to Seattle Sports at Night with Curtis Rogers, Jay Keeps, and Stacey Rost. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studio on 710 ESPN Seattle. You can listen to Seattle Sports Tonight on the 710 Sports app. It is driven by your Puget Sound Acura dealers. We got... The quarterback, Jake Heaps. I'm Curtis Rogers. We are with you here for about the next 45 minutes on 710 ESPN Seattle. We'll be back with you next Monday night uh, as we we don't have Friday shows. That's right. I'm, I'm okay with uh, <laughs> just an early start to the weekend. That's right. Uh, but uh, coming up in 15 minutes from now in Big If True, we take a look at one position group for the Seahawks that a lot of people have sounded off on, and it'll be our chance to sound off on, too. That's coming up in 15 minutes from now. But, Jake, did you see this last week? There was a video circulating around of a Little League game where there was a full-on brawl, not between the teams, but between parents and umpires out on the field. And it was just one of the ugliest situations I've ever seen on video. And it's a Little League game, first off. Like, that's where we need to start. Right. Like, it's not pros and even if this did happen in professional sports it would be unspeakable but the fact that it was a little league game and that it was involving umpires who likely were making either minimum wage or were volunteering their time first off i think that that needs to be 
put out there for anybody who wants to criticize like youth officiating is that these people are scraping by. Like they're doing this out of the goodness of their heart or the love of the game or whatever. Yes. Uh and it got me thinking and it also on ESPN.com today there was a an article written by Kevin Seifert who actually joined John Clayton uh today on his show and they were talking about how officiating in the pro ranks and how we hold them to such a high standard because of replay and because of all the camera angles in which we can see calls be made, that has had an adverse effect on officiating across all levels where that expectation still exists at the youth level when games aren't televised. So you can't go to replay. And here's what Kevin Seifert had to say about how officials now being put up for like public scorn when they do make mistakes. Annual, yearly, over and over, game after game, you know, video reviews on TV and in the replay system showing all the mistakes that officials supposedly make has really lessened the authority of officials at all levels and really created what in many cases is really toxic and um, – and uh, at least contributed to really toxic environments on the very low levels of sports. And so it's not the only reason those toxic uh, situations have evolved, but it has certainly fueled it according to a lot of the people who are involved. When you were playing youth sports and anybody missed a call or whatever, were there ever times where situations kind of got out of hand and, and parents maybe lost their cool or, or umpires or referees lost their cool? Yeah, I don't think that this is a recent issue. I believe that now that we have social media and that we have smartphones and all that, that we are able to capture these things more and more. And also the other disgusting thing that I've come to find is is that most people, instead of trying to solve the problem or get the right people involved to de-escalate a situation. They instead just pull out their phones and they sit there and watch as a, as a bystander. This is an issue that you have to look for moving forward for the next generation is, look, sports is an emotional game. It's an emotional event that has highs and lows. And the best part about it is it's an imperfect game. There are imperfect situations and the referees are part of that. And, when you look at this, I understand the thought process of, you know, because you see it at the pro level and you have high definition cameras now, you can slow things down at an incredible rate and really get down to the bottom uh, or root of the problems. You can generally get to the right call. And sometimes you can't. And because you can't, we saw with the New Orleans Saints, that went horribly wrong, and it was clear for everybody to see on replay over and over and over again, and now it leads to more accountability for a missed call, um, whereas you know back in the 70s and 80s, you watched some games back in, in that time frame, and there are missed calls all the time. And the cameras have like four pixels. Yes. So you it, can't see anything anyway. No, and, and nor nor is there any extra repercussions for that. And you don't see, you know, for the most part, players over-exaggerate, over-exaggerating the issue. And I believe Pete Carroll came on and said very recently that he almost wishes that there wasn't any instant replay. That you would live with the call that was made good or bad and everybody had to deal with that call 
just so that you didn't feel like one referee was getting a, or one team was getting away with a call versus another. Everybody was dealing with good or bad calls throughout the game. And I understand that to a degree. To me, Curtis, this comes down to emotional intelligence. Do you have emotional intelligence, meaning that you can handle your emotions in the game, in the height of a game where an official makes the wrong call? And understand that they are human beings. You could be upset with the call, and oh, you, yeah, can, that's, you can. That's fair, and you, and that's fair, and you can be. You can express that opinion, but it has to stop somewhere, and it has to stop on a reasonable level. And instead of attacking the person and making personal attacks, and 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 taking it to the next step, because all you're doing as that adult is teaching your children or teaching your, the youth how to then handle it, right or wrong. And that is the responsibility of parents. That's the responsibility of adults, of coaches that are in that situation. It's your job to teach the next generation uh, to handle those situations. And to me, it is far too often missed than it is handled the right way. And I don't know if if ultimately the instant replay uh, has that big of a factor into it other than people just not being able to handle the intensity, their emotions the right way and be able to express them in an appropriate manner. Yeah, I think that was a great point you made about how kids seeing these kinds of reactions made by parents and adults that are involved in the game and and then adapting that behavior later on and then it's a vicious cycle where those kids grow up and they lash out at referees and umpires who are just they're just volunteering their time mm-hmm. and it, it just continues where i think it starts with the coaches at that level they need to get a hold of their parents and they need to get a hold of of also their athletes too and say hey like this kind of behavior it's not okay from you if anybody's going to say anything to a, a referee it's going to be me the coach and and it's not going to be you and we need to stop this right now and unfortunately, like, it's not – this isn't a one-time thing. Like, this happens year after year. Like, this will probably happen more this summer. We're going to probably see more videos of, of incidents like this at every kind of level. Yeah. I'll, and, get, I'll give you a great example, Curtis. I mean, one we saw on Twitter, I, I think it kind of went viral a little bit of just an all-out brawl that happened in a Little League baseball game. But I was at a baseball game last night um, and watching my nephew, uh, Luke, shout out to the uh, – South Hill All Stars. Oh man, you, uh, they you don't are, want to see they, South Hill All Stars coming your way. I'm no, telling you, you that. No, you do not. They are on their way to the championship game. Uh, it was a fun, exciting game to watch. But there were moments within that game that were extremely disappointing for me to watch in terms of how coaches and players handled things, and also parents for that matter. Uh, one situation in particular was the very end of the game. It was the last batter and. Uh, the, the the last batter struck out for the other team, and the South Hill All Stars are celebrating. They're fired up, and this young player, it was a bad call by the referee. It was a ball that was outside the plate, and he called him strike, and it was three strikes. You're out, and the player, both arms, uh, opened up, yelling at the re- at the umpire. The umpire walked away and did not see it at all, but the kid was yelling at him. Uh, he ended up then turning around after open-armed yelling at the ump for about five steps, turns around, throws his bat down onto the ground, throw, chucks his helmet. 
I mean, uh, tw- 10 to 20 feet. And all the coach does is in that moment makes him pick up his bat, makes him pick up the hat uh, or his uh, his helmet and, you know, had a few words for him. But it didn't it wasn't in a in a stern manner in terms of, look, you're never, ever going to do this again. It was more like, you know, hey, just pick it up and, and let's move on. And then from that point on, the coach of the other team didn't shake the hands of the other coach coming across. And that was felt and seen by all the players as you were moving around. So an opportunity for sportsmanship, handle it the right way. And then there was one of our parents on our side for South Hill Little Leaguers that was going after that young player for handling it and calling him names and calling him, you know, uh, certain things. And it was just it, it, all the way around the emotional intelligence of everybody in that situation. It just was not where it needed to be. And to me, that is the biggest miss of everybody in that situation the kids can make mistakes the kids can do things that they see on tv uh, that might not be handled the right way it is up to the the adults of the situation to then educate and show by example how it's done properly and and that's the that's what it's all about curtis so i don't know i mean where do we see this moving forward? Is this is this ever going to be something that's that's uh, uh, eventually going to come to a head one way or the other? I mean, I, I don't know. You just force every parent to watch the game from their car. <laughs> like I, I think that's the the only way you could ever curtail this to a point where you you don't run the risk of situations escalating to what they did uh, this week. Like. I mean that unfortunately that is the mo that would be the one scenario in which you probably would have a hundred percent success rate at this unless a kid or unless a parent got out of their car and then right. made a beeline for the field and started charging at the umpire. Uh, unfortunately, like it, it's there's a decline in youth sports activity that we've seen over the last couple of years, and maybe it's injury risk or whatever, and parents don't want to have to deal with that. But also, like I never had this issue happened to me and, and I'm thankful, but it, it happened to a lot of my friends where their parents would just suck the fun out of the the games or the practices or whatever. And they just didn't want to deal with right. having to, you know, those car ride homes where, you know, you, you hit a grand slam or you throw a touchdown pass or you catch a touchdown, whatever. And like, you're like, yeah, I had such a great game. But then, you know, the parent is like, well, could have worked on that, 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 and that. And it's like, what? It's just like, can't you be happy for me? Like, right. I was awesome out there. Like, I, yep. I, I, if it weren't for me, we would have lost the game. And, you know, unfortunately, like, I'm not going to pile on parents too much here, but at the end of the day, they have the most influence on these kids. Yes. Whether it be on the field or at home. And so to be able to, like, talk to them at home and tell them, like, hey, this is not how we act out on the field and, you know, lead by example. I think that needs to happen more often, and, and like unfortunately, we're not seeing that right now. So just be better, do better, and yes. everything will be better. I, I think that was one of the biggest things that you said is is you know sucking the fun out of this whole experience. This is not about you, the parent. This is about this is about the kids. Let's celebrate the kids out there. Exactly, and making this whatever sport that you're playing, making this an environment that's conducive to learning and growing, because ultimately, that's what sports is about. Mm-hmm. Not everybody is going to be a professional athlete and make millions of dollars when you think your little Johnny is going to be able to do that. It's not, the percentages are not there. 
But what you what I hope that every parent's goal is by enrolling their kids into sports is by learning hard work, learning work ethic, learning that winning and losing is a part of life and that if you want to win, then it requires a little bit more sacrifice than it does take losing. And also that in the moment of defeat, you know how to handle that the right way and know how to come back even stronger. And like you said, the biggest influencers are the parents within the home or the family members that are closest to that athlete. The second is the professional athletes. And one of the things that has been a disturbing development for me is watching athletes at the professional level not handle themselves in the best manner either. I mean, I watch NBA basketball, and it is so hard for me to watch because it is just nonstop jawing and complaining at the referees in the most obscene manner possible. And NBA players probably have the most influence on youth in America in terms of the four major sports. Without a doubt. Because they're the most visible. Without a doubt. And and so it, it, from that, you know, having the players be better and having that standard be higher, but then as the parent, as they see that with their kids or, or with their loved ones in that moment, being able to teach them what is right and wrong and how to how to go about it the right way. Those things are the biggest you know, keys to all of this. And again, adults having emotional intelligence, being the ones responsible for staying level-headed and cool in the moment doesn't mean you can't get upset, doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt, doesn't mean that you're not as invested as your kids in these things. But it means that at the end of the day, you are the one that is responsible for giving these kids the best environment to learn and grow and have a fun experience in their sporting careers for however long it is. Coming up next here on Seattle Sports at Night, it's time for Big If True. The Seahawks, they're a couple weeks out. Well, they're actually more than a couple weeks out. They're a few weeks out from training camp. But one position group is pretty stacked right now. Is it going to remain that way through the end of training camp? We take a listen to what a couple of analysts have said about it. Coming up next, Curtis Rogers, Jay Keep, Seattle Sports at Night on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to Seattle Sports at Night with Curtis Rogers, Jake Heaps, and Stacy Rost. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studio on 710 ESPN Seattle. Seattle Sports at Night right here. In 15 minutes, it will be time for some four-down territory. Jake Heaps and myself, Curtis Rogers, here. What part of Russell Wilson's game has the most room for improvement heading into the 2019 season? we got a quarterback guru among us. It's not me. Well, I mean, don't confuse the people because I I know that that is a big misconception out there. (laughs) Curtis Rogers is our baseball insider for the Mariners. I also dabble as a QB guru. Yes, he he does moonlight as a QB guru from time (laughs) to time. That's how I make my – it's my side hustle. That's right. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, yeah, that's coming up in about 15 minutes from now. But as we do most nights, or, well, pretty much every night now, it is time for Big If True and – Tonight we're looking at the Seahawks tight end group, and a couple of analysts think they have how this year's depth chart is going to shake out, so let's get into it. This can't be happening! Big. You can't be serious, man. If. Did he he say say that? that? True. History is going to change. The bottom line on the hottest opinions of the day. You cannot be serious! Tonight's Big If True comes to us from couple of people, a dueling Big If True, as it were. I don't know if we've ever done this. Is this within the rules of Big If True? I, I believe it is. I okay. mean, we, we, we make up the rules, don't we? So whatever the heck we want, Curtis. Yeah, exactly. It's late at night. There are no rules. But uh, Michael Bumpus, who's a member of the Seahawks radio network, 
Uh, he's an analyst pre- and post-game show. He joined Danny David Moore a couple of nights ago, and they asked him about the tight end group and how he thinks this depth chart is going to shake out. And he gave a pretty interesting name as to who he thinks will be a roster casualty. Which tight end doesn't make it then? I would go with Vanette at this point. Um, I Nick think Vanette. Yeah, yeah. I think Vanette doesn't make the team. I like Hollister. I think that he's elusive when he catches the ball. I think him and Disley are kind of the same. And I think you need a veteran guy like Ed in there just to bring everything together. It's all on Fan. Fan is making this thing interesting. You know, I, if he's not there, all three of those guys make the team. We, we don't have this conversation, but I would go with those guys. So that's Michael Bumpus's opinion. He thinks Nick Vanette was going to be a roster casualty of this tight end group just because of how many guys are already there. You've got yeah. Vanette, Dixon, Jacob Hollister, Will Disley, and then like a, a four-and-a-half kind of member is George Fant, who also can play on the offensive line. Now, Bob Condota of the Seattle Times, he said Ed Dixon could be the guy who gets cut out of that group. Right. So we've got multiple names being thrown out there, and I think John Clayton uh, also mentioned Jacob Hollister's name as someone who could find his way off the roster just because of where he sees things shaking out. Jake, you have been to OTAs. You've been to minicamp. What did you see from the tight end group right now, and what do you think is going to be the way it shakes out? Yeah, I, the big thing to me is, look, I understand what Michael is saying about you know, Nick Vanette possibly being on the chopping block. I also see Dixon and Hollister, for that matter. The, all three of those guys are really in question here. I think Disley is very safe in where he's at and, and wanting to see that through for the Seahawks to see if he can reach his potential. Ed Dixon, to me, though, is a veteran player that I believe really um, has a great presence uh, on that locker room, uh, in that position group. He's, he's a physical guy uh, in terms of, you know, staying attached to the line of scrimmage and being a blocker. Uh, he did a great job when called upon him to to catch the football. And he is the one that is the most obvious just because of the cap hit that he has. So he is set to make, th- you know, he's set to make a good amount of money this next year, $3.3 million. Um, and, and, again, the Seahawks could save a good amount of cap space if they release him. But with their cap- current cap situation – it's not like they're hurting for space. Correct. So in that case, there's really no reason to cut Ed Dixon for for that. So you're exactly right, Curtis. There There is no legitimate reason for that. The same thing with Barkevius Mingo on the other side of the ball. Nick Vedette, however, is a guy that I believe has continued to keep growing and developing year after year. And Jacob Hollister is a player that I believe could be a jack-of-all-trades. He's not going to be your traditional wide tight end. He's going to be a guy that's more versatile that you can move him around and he can, although he's adequate in blocking to what you would want him to do, um, he's not going to be a mauler at the line of scrimmage, but he's an excellent pass catcher and used right could add a different dynamic to this offense that I think would be very welcomed. So when you look at all this, I think it's funny that we're kind of looking at this as it's got to be one of these, you know, it's got to be one of these guys is on the chopping block. I think that these guys, all of them, could remain on the roster, and here's why. George Fant playing the tight end position does not mean that he takes a roster spot from tight end. He is not listed George Fant tight end. He's listed George Fant tackle. 
He did the same thing last year, and you had four tight ends on your roster last year. So with that being said, I believe that there's a good chance that all of these guys, Jacob Halser, Will Disley, Nick Vanette, and Ed Dixon, still make this roster. There's really no reason to remove any of these players other than if you're trying to add an extra receiver onto your roster um, and if one of these guys does not fit your mold in terms of what you want to do on special teams. So that's where ultimately it comes down to, and I think that this has kind of gotten blown out of proportion in terms of who needs to be cut from the tight end position. They're not in that big of a roster uh, stretch for all four of these guys to make the team. Now, that that's all fine and dandy, but there's no guarantee that this roster, as it currently situates, is going to be what it is come just even middle of training camp because of injury. and, and Correct, yeah. Let, let's say a couple of guys go down in the wide receiver core. Uh, not, not, I'm not saying that that's going to happen or anything, but like, let's say that Gary Jennings continues to have issues flare up and then somebody else in that wide receiver room does. Could they look to the tight end group as, as a position to say, hey, we've got a surplus here. We can afford to maybe lose one of these guys in order to get some depth at the wide receiver spot. Yes, you absolutely could do that with the tight end position. And then it becomes who has had the better preseason in my mind, Nick Vanette or Ed Dixon. And you know what you're getting with Ed Dixon. Nick Vanette is really kind of the X factor here. And then once again, if this Seahawks offense, I don't know how they're going to use him. I am a huge fan of Jacob Hollister, and I believe that this kid can can have an impact. Watching two years of Patriots film, of his role and what he was able to do, and then also seeing him through OTAs, he's absolutely torn it up in OTAs so far. Uh, and, and I can't wait to see what he does in training camp. But that is a guy that can be used in a lot of different positions on the field to create mismatches and could be a guy that Russell Wilson ultimately gains or develops chemistry with. So I really think it comes down to Ed Dixon and Nick Vanette. You don't need three blocking tight ends that are solely dedicated to that. Uh, adding a wild card type of tight end and Jacob Hollister that gives you versatility I think is a good mix-up. But it ultimately comes down to does Schottenheimer want to get creative with a guy like Jacob Hollister. And if they don't feel that that is a fit for this scheme and what they want to do, then Hollister doesn't make sense for the Seahawks and they move on from him. So that's where I see this whole thing going. If if Hollister makes this team, then they're going to try to use him and create mismatches. If he's not with this roster, it's because they want the traditional tight end role. Who do you think is going to be the odd man out in the tight end group? Or do you think there is one? Text that in to the Coors Light text line 710-710. We want to hear from you. By the way, make sure you're downloading the Seattle Sports Night podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at 710sports.com. Click on podcast. You can find every hour of every show there, including Seattle Sports at Night. And I think that should be priority number one. Without a doubt. Yeah. Subscribe to it. Leave us a rating. It's all there for you. Coming up next in four down territory, Baker Mayfield taking shots at people again. Ah. Uh-huh. Can a quarterback be successful in the NFL if they're so preoccupied settling off the field scores? We answer that next in four down territory right here on Seattle Sports Tonight on 710 ESPN Seattle. This this is four down territory on Seattle Sports at Night. You got deep, deep, deep. Four down territory here on Seattle Sports Night. Jake, you're you look a little confused because we we were talking about the band Fish in the break. 
Yeah, it, it, apparently Tom Wassel's favorite band of all time. Yeah, he's going to go see them five nights in a row in this, this summer. Holy cow. I mean... That's dedication. That is dedication. To my understanding, it's just jam music, right? It's not yeah. even like up-tempo. No. Whew. Man, okay. All right, that's some serious dedication right there. Just as we are dedicated to the four biggest questions in the NFL right now, let's get into four-down territory. Let's go. Number one. First down to you, Jake. Russell Wilson, I mean, the guy's got it all. He's got the great contract, the beautiful wife, the already legendary NFL career. So which part of his game has the most room for improvement in 2019? I think the most room for improvement that Russell Wilson has for 2019 is, I think, his ability to throw into the middle of the field uh, with anticipation. I think that's always been something in his game that's always kind of been iffy, and I think a big part of that is for the fact that he throws in lanes. At, at his stature at five at 5'10", you're looking through lanes. You're not seeing over bodies. And with this massive offensive line that he has, you sometimes have to have that ultimate trust factor with your receivers that they're going to be in the right place at the right time. And you've got to trust that they're going to that they're going to be there in the middle of that defense. And at different points in time in his career, that is something that has stood out for him. And so I think throwing with great anticipation in the middle of the field is going to be something that will be big for him. Uh, but overall, just getting that chemistry with receivers number two, three, and four. Last year, you were down to Tyler Lockett and Doug Baldwin, really as the go-to guys. And although he had record-setting numbers and had an unbelievable season last year, I think there's times where it could have been even better had he had that trust in other guys. And that's not solely on Russell. That's on the other. That's on the other receivers. Uh, in this lineup, DK Metcalf, Jaron Brown, David Moore, Gary Jennings, John Ursua, Terry Wright, uh, Keenan Reynolds. It's on those guys to develop that chemistry, be in the right place at the right time, gain that trust factor. And in doing so, you're going to see this offense take another step forward and Russell being willing to take chances like that. And that's something that greatly needs to increase, not just with Tyler Lockett, but with the rest of this crew as well. Number two. Second down, Jake. Baker Mayfield back in the news again. And he's taking shots at people once again. What's el- what else is new? What so el- last year he took shots at Mark Schlereth, Colin Cowherd. He's taking shots at Hugh Jackson, former Cleveland head coach. Now yeah, talk he's to me. taking shots at University of Texas starting quarterback Sam Ellinger, <laughs> of all yeah. people. Long-term, can a quarterback be successful in the NFL if they're so preoccupied settling off-the-field scores? This has always been something that has made me worried about Baker Mayfield, not just uh, for this year, but moving forward, the longevity, right? I think anybody can be a flash-in-the-pan quarterback that can come in and take the world by storm and have a great season, possibly two, but can you have great longevity in this league? And Baker's mentality has always been, I'm going to have a chip on my shoulder. I'm going to be edgy. It's going to be us versus everybody. And when you get into a professional world like the NFL, that mentality doesn't always ring true. You saw that when he talked about Duke Johnson's contract situation with the team and him wanting a trade, and he's popped off on that and had some very choice words about Duke Johnson and the te- and his teammates around him. 
Baker's veteran teammates around him sitting him down and saying, look, dude, that's not how we do things. You don't talk about another man's money. And oh, by the way, the Browns were the ones that wanted to trade Duke Johnson from the beginning. So that type of mentality just doesn't always ring true in the NFL. There is a lot of gray area in professional sports. And so for him, my biggest concern is is that he's going to be too worried about settling scores and and getting the best of everybody else and in the sound bites that he receives that it'll bleed onto his effectiveness on the field. So far, Curtis, that has not happened. And I'm just waiting for the day that it does because you just don't see that very often in the NFL and it pan out and be successful, a, a, a remedy for success. And I believe there's a reason for that and eventually it catches up to you. So I will be fascinated. It's fun. He's got a brash personality and I and I like his game. But overall, is that attitude going to catch up to him and, and cause problems? We'll see. Number three. Third down, couple more opportunities, put seven on the board before we head out for the night. The NFL has now settled in on how they're going to handle pass interference replays for the 2019 season. Did they make the right call, Jake? Yeah, I believe they did. I think the competition committee finalized their rule, uh, and it's it's about time in terms of the tweaks that they were going to uphold uh, from, from what they were doing. And so as a result, the coaches will be able to challenge pass interference calls or no calls up until the two-minute warning of either half. And in the final two minutes of each game or in overtime, on-site replay officials will be responsible for stopping the game to review pass interference and they are all reviewable plays. The only problem that you have with this is that are they going to be too over the top with this? Everything that's close, are they going to stop and watch it and see what happens? I think this is only going to be for the big plays, the big obvious things, and we saw this rule stay in place with New Orleans last year against the Rams, and this was a fail situation because whoever was responsible for reviewing the play in that moment did not. So this isn't, again, this isn't a perfect system, but you hope with that oversight, there is more successful uh, outcomes than there are negative. And I believe that this ultimately will be the right decision. Number four. Last chance for points on the board before we get some sleep. It's late here on this Thursday night. It's about Friday morning now. Uh, outside of talent, Jake, what is the one? What is one of the biggest keys to a quarterback's success? I think one of the biggest keys outside of their talent is the environment around them. And when I mean environment, I mean not only the players and the support staff and all of that, but your coaches. And how do your coaches handle you in terms of your instruction when things go wrong? What is that relationship like? Do you have guys that are there to help you, protect you, uh, to, to educate you, or are they there to beat you down? And and in the NFL, far too often, this is a chew you up, spit you out type of league instead of trying to cultivate that relationship, that, that bond. And playing quarterback is an emotional game. And if you can keep the quarterback's headspace right and you can keep him comfortable in terms of the sense that you're not – you're not being soft with him and there's no accountability, but that he has a place, a safe place to go and communicate and get on the same page with his quarterback coaches, his offensive coordinator. That is when you find the utmost success. And that, to me, is the biggest factor in a quarterback's success. You look at a lot of rookie quarterbacks and whether they pan out or not. They had the talent. 
and sometimes they just didn't have what it takes to succeed at the highest level. But sometimes it's also a failure of the environment around them and the coaching staff, the general manager, head coach in place handling that particular player. So quarterback to me is the biggest factor, one of the biggest keys outside of talent for them to be successful. That is another edition of Four Down Territory. That's going to do it for us here on this Thursday. We'll be back with you next week for the quarterback, Jake Heaps. I'm Curtis Rogers. This is Seattle Sports Tonight on 710 ESPN Seattle.